Inclusive leadership. According to Harvard Business Review, inclusive leaders help organizations by creating 17% more high-performing teams, driving 20% high-quality decision-making, and 29% more collaborative work. Numerous studies indicate that inclusive workplaces lead to lower attrition, improved employee engagement, and when leaders take time to lean in with empathy, it encourages their employees to be their best authentic selves while creating a workplace where positively impacting organizational goals and initiatives. Welcome to the Diversity Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Audra Jenkins, joined by my extraordinary co-host, Nino Campos. Today, we're speaking with the one and only Jennifer Brown. She's an award-winning entrepreneur, speaker, author, and diversity inclusion expert. She's deeply passionate about building more inclusive workplaces where more of us can feel welcomed, valued, respected, and heard. As the founder and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, a certified woman and LGBT-owned firm, Jennifer and her team designs and execute inclusive strategies that have been implemented by some of the biggest companies and nonprofits in the world. She is also the best-selling author of four incredible books, Inclusion, Beyond Diversity, The New Workplace, and The Will to Change, How to Be an Inclusive Leader, First and Second Edition, and the host of the Will to Change podcast, which is in a phenomenal seventh year of production. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Audra. Thank you for joining us today. We're so excited to have you on the program and do so appreciate your time. Can we just jump right into our questions? Um, of course. Absolutely. Good. So Jennifer, as you know, I am such a huge fan of yours. You've been doing this work for so many years. Long <laughs> before know. it was maintained popular. I was like, oh my gosh, you've been fighting this fight for a long time, Jennifer. Long time. Long time. Long time. So can you tell us, our audience, what was the catalyst for you to pivot your career and start focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI? Thank you for asking that. That is always the question because we come at this work from so many different disciplines, many of which are really surprising, and there's really no one template for us. And I think that's what makes us this field really interesting and amazing because we all bring our lens to it. So my particular lens is informed by a couple things. First, I would go all the way back to the fact that I was a nonprofit activist in my 20s, always wanted to make a difference. That was very clear to me. But I was also a musician and a singer, and I had big dreams. So I moved to New York. I went to grad school for operatic vocal performance. I had been a musician my whole life, raised in a musical family, and this was really could have been amazing. Sadly, through the course of operatic training, I injured my voice and it happened several times. I had to get vocal surgery and I had to realize that I would need to find another means to express myself, to practice my craft, to make a living. And it was super heartbreaking. As we do when we're young, we think all is lost, but it is never all lost. And in fact, we are redirected when we're not exactly in the right place. So I ended up reinventing by enrolling in another master's program after my master's in music in organizational change and development and leadership. Because somebody said, you love the stage, why don't you consider being a facilitator? And I didn't know what that was in the corporate environment, but I would soon come to learn about this thing called learning and development, corporate learning, and be able to focus on this fascinating thing called leadership. Why do people change? What do they, how do they evolve? Why do they resist? Lots of psychology in there, lots of really like juicy human universal themes that I found fascinating and leading adults through that and myself, honestly, through it was just incredible. So I discovered this field. I would pursue it as an internal HR person. And then I was laid off and I said, I'm going to hang out my own shingle and be a trainer. And I trained every topic you can imagine on leadership catalog, not including DNI. Actually, I didn't know that field existed. And this was 20, 25 years ago. I was also coming out at that time as LGBTQ+. So I came out of my 20s, had been closeted as an operatic performer because I didn't see anyone that shared my story or was willing to be public about it. And then in the HR world, I was still relatively closeted trying to figure out, could I be bring my full self to work? And subsequently, starting my own company, as some of you know, they're listening to this, you have the agency to do a lot more and the freedom to do it. And you realize, you come to realize it's a real differentiator to have wrestled with 
the closet, to have wrestled with finding the empathy in others, inviting them into a conversation, doing hard things. And there's so many hard things. I mean, there's no shortage of those when you are grappling with identities of all kinds that have been traditionally marginalized with family, friends, workplace, et cetera. So I think what's interesting is I was a vocalist that lost my voice. And then I found a way to use my voice and be on the stage differently. And really today I get to keynote a lot and speak a lot, which is my favorite thing. And I get to do so from this very deep heart-centered place around my own identity story, my own uncovering process, my own journey to authenticity, which is still unfolding. And I realize I was meant to use my voice, just not as a singer. And what I've really realized is it's who has been voiceless, you know, what has not been voiced yet. And that's what draws me to these frontiers of things like mental health, things like neurodiversity, things like gender identity, all these, not just the usual topics we focus on when we think of identity, race, gender, sexual orientation, but really also broadening the aperture and saying what needs to be voiced in order to flourish here in this workplace. And I think I can have a deep understanding of voice from all different angles now. And I know how to amplify. I know how to use my voice in allyship, work on that every single day, use my voice to point people towards what who they need to know, what they need to say, and what they need to do. And that's what I wake up thinking about every day now. So it was all, all preordained, unbeknownst to me. <laughs> wow. That is amazing, Jennifer. Oh my goodness. I, every time I hear that story, I, I get chills just thinking about the great pivot of your life. And it's interesting. We all wake up with our plans, but <laughs> Don't sometimes it, you know, it doesn't always go to plan, right? So I love how you said that you lost your voice and then you found another voice to be the voice for those without a voice. That was so powerful. I, I just think about all DEI professionals out there listening today. I think that's what we wake up for or do. We have to take up this helmet and this shield and be that voice for those who feel like they don't have, they have no voice or no place or no space to be themselves. That's right. It's beautiful. It's beautiful work. So pivoting, as you've seen, as we're all feeling this pressure right now, there's been a huge shift with organizations. I think if you look back over the past five, six years, DNI was picking up momentum, particularly in 2020. We saw a lot of companies make tremendous commitments to this work and this space. And now we're in 2024. We're facing several things, major wars around the world, disruption, still suffering with some people are still suffering long COVID, many macroeconomic challenges. And are you concerned about some of the DEI pushback that's been making the news and headlines lately? Of course. Yeah, I think we all are. I mean, some people would dismiss it as the sort of last gasp of an old world, protecting its power, protecting the world they knew, the world that used to be, and a denial of the rapid demographic changes that are happening in the country. The hope to go back and sort of keep my head in the sand. And that is going to be a fight. It's a fight over power. It's a fight over who matters. And it's a fight. It's very well-organized fight that we're engaged in now. To Even to the extent that, Audra, that I'm, it's sort of shocking that our DEI field, which I always characterize as kind of a a sort of niche, unknown field. I mean, I was in it for a super long time and I stumbled on it and I knew everybody in it literally for years. So it certainly proliferated in 2020, but it was always our little secret <laughs> in a way. We were all kind of heads down doing this great work, really important work. So it's surreal this year to see it in every CNN headline. It's just surreal. I have to believe, I was reading on the history of how these groups operate that are coming after companies and causing this chilling effect on the whole thing. And eventually they move from sort of hot topic to hot topic. They're looking for something that's inflammatory. We happen to be in the hot seat at the moment, but that article, it was in the Times actually this past weekend, which would have been the January 23rd weekend if you want to look for it. But it just, it went back and sort of said they went after this. And then the latest was CRT, right? And then now it's, you notice it's DEI. And there's been many other steps along the way. So I guess I say that 
it gave me comfort because when we think of that arc of the moral universe, right, some of us are sitting here wondering, is it ever going to (laughs) bend? Is it really bending towards justice? This certainly doesn't feel like it. But um, I try to step back and realize this work. We've been doing this for two decades in my case. And I wasn't even, I'm certainly not in the first generation. I stood on the shoulders of those I met at that point when I was 25 years younger than today. And I was so impressed and amazed at some of the early companies, the early adopters, those that were leading those efforts in those companies and being recognized. And so I do think our journey and our story is continuing to unfold. We've got huge demographic tailwinds on our side. We have a we have enormous support in the form of younger talent. And the pressure is going to get louder and more undeniable for leaders who don't want to do anything about this topic, who don't want to truly listen to the workforce, who don't want to get comfortable being uncomfortable and shift their leadership. And trust me, this is uncomfortable for everybody. You know, I don't let leaders off the hook at the senior levels from really leading on this, but I will say that they are really the most incompetent. And I'm not saying that to be derogatory. It's just a fact. Most unconfident in the, what do I do now? And how do I lead differently to create trust, to create a a culture where people feel comfortable and they want to stay here? Because if you're not, if you're a leader and you don't care about that, and you're not keeping tabs on that every single moment of every day, I worry about your longevity. But that denial is strong. The fear to change is strong in us as humans in general. And I don't think we let go very willingly of the things and the recipe that has helped us succeed. And also the ways that our organizations have incentivized behavior. We really haven't measured inclusion. We haven't defined it in a way that's actionable. We haven't, we're still figuring out what equity really means and looks like and what leaders can do and should do and need to do to look critically at their systems and processes through an equity lens. Like we're still figuring out the language to give people to do the work. And I think we're still in process of that. And one thing I will say to wrap up, we have left some folks behind in our headlong rush towards progress, feeling so much that we are chasing the truth. It might be the truth, but how we get there is going to matter. And if we need to slow down and go back to basics this year, perhaps that is what we need to do in order to get more of us forward. And that might be frustrating to hear. That might be not what we want to do. We might be tired and fatigued. But honestly, if we want to go where we want to go, we've got to marshal as many of us to go there together as possible. It's not going to work if we bifurcate the world and everybody's hunkered into their positions. And this is where we find ourselves now. So this is, let's meet the moment where we're at and figure out what to do. Yeah. Oh my goodness, Jennifer. I could not say that better. There's a quote I love is Mahatma Gandhi and he says, truth never damages a cause that is just. And when I think about DNI, I think that's a just cause. I think that when you think about equity, everybody has a different perspective on equity and what that means and how are we considered. People want to push on equality, which is saying we're giving everybody the same thing, but equity is giving people what they need, where they are, meeting people at the point of where they are to get them where they need to be. And I think that's the piece of it that it's not hard to articulate, but it's hard for people to wrap their mind about it from as a leadership lens of the equity piece. Because, yes, if I say I'm going to give everybody X percent raise, but if this person's doing 90 hours of work and they're down here and this person's doing 20 hours of work and they're way here, way up here, that's not equitable. So I think it's just looking at really we have a real honest look at what's existing today, your as-is state, and what can be. And I think that's where leaders leaders need to be. They really need to be looking their current state and what is possible. What is the art of possibility around equity? And I think that's where we're missing the boat for most organizations. And Audra, at a time when the legal challenges are specifically targeting equity programs. I mean, we've been developing women leaders for years in my company, doing leadership development programs, or LGBTQ leaders, or leaders with differing abilities and veterans. We've designed and delivered some of these programs, and there's some of the things I'm most proud of and the most profound moments I have witnessed in those classrooms back when we were in classrooms, <laughs> real classrooms. <laughs> and we could hug each other. We could cry. Like just the shedding of the covering behaviors and the burden, the extra cloak that some of us wear when we are the only, when we have struggled to be heard, when we are fighting our way through aggressions every day. 
biases, conscious and unconscious, just to be in a place where you can let your you know shoulders down and breathe together and say, oh, you too, not just me. This is a systemic issue and it's a human issue. Humans, if you're human, you're biased. And we have so much work to do with the humans in the organizations too. But this is precisely what's being targeted as giving an unfair advantage when really you and I both know the playing field began not level. And these programs, these differential investments through an equity lens give folks sort of tool up or skill up or provide space to say like, hey, like here's, we're going to give you an acceleration so that you can be on that equal playing field because of cultural norms, because of lack of role models, because this is not the fault of anybody. When you don't see yourself reflected in a system and you don't have family members that have been in that system, it's not a language that you understand. There are cultural norms that you're outside of. You're not mentored. You're not sponsored. These things are external to us. We are hard workers. We are contributors. But there are real factual barriers in the way. And so the differential investments are so beautiful. And I hate to see them be canceled. If they're changed and morphed, they need a women's program needs to open its doors to all. Great. As long as we can talk about how gendered people's experience really is and what happens in that case, right? LGBTQ programs can have allies in them because there's an awesome learning opportunity there too. It may not be a single identity space, but there's a lot of good that still can be done. So I'm just in lots of these, I'm sure you are too, sort of how can we work around this and make lemonade out of lemons in these moments when are these things we've believed to have worked and we know really work well are being questioned? It's such good work. Like the truth of it is that it's like very, it works. It works. Frustrating. It is. Well, Jennifer, my next question is, I think you touched on this, some of the missed opportunities in DEI when it was a height of focus before we had the pushback. What should we have progressed on and we have not when we had the chance in 2020? Yeah, lots. So this is what I would really recommend, a bunch of things. First of all, I wouldn't say we've left behind, but who is feeling left behind? Those are two different things. So I don't want to put the onus and the total accountability on us. And that's, by the way, the DEI world is very diverse in all of our, not just identity, but in our philosophy. I would say our change philosophies are different. We create change differently because of what we believe about it, what we're comfortable with, how we've seen it happen. We do it differently. So, but I mean, I think there's a shared accountability here because maybe looking back, I know that many people were not ready to digest or able to digest all the truth that was revealed in 2020. We know this. We knew this. I knew it for sure. I knew. I mean, I built the inclusive leader continuum model because I said in phase two aware, it is an inundation of truth that is really difficult to hear about your world, about your families, about how you were raised, about what you've believed, about what you haven't haven't, haven't done in your life. It's a lot. It sort of causes a ripping up of the sense of self. And that I'm not a psychologist, but the evolution, you cannot rush evolution. You cannot give somebody a deadline and do this whole what gets measured gets done. You will be an ally. <laughs> you will do this. Nope. People don't no, work that way. Don't. Organizations don't work that way. Change is slow. I know this. You know, you know this. So, you know, I think our change, I think our change philosophy, and for such good reasons, for so much zeal, so much enthusiasm, I know it felt so validating and vindicating that year. It felt so much like being seen in a deep hunger to be seen and for my truth to be heard. Right. And so it was beautiful. It was a beautiful moment. And I, I am so grateful to have lived through it. My change architect hat says, who felt not intentionally, not a part of this conversation, not a part of this, and actually maybe shamed, maybe put in a box, maybe misidentified in terms of their own diversity dimensions that might have been invisible. So what I'm trying to do and what I have been trying to do is open the aperture much more broadly to welcome more people into the conversation, to see themselves in it, and to say, you too, you too not only know something about this, you know what I'm talking about. But when I speak that way and I show like literally a list of 40 dimensions, many of which are invisible, most of which are invisible about us, people will say, I've never heard it described this way. Nobody's, I've never felt like I was part of this ever before, which tells me in audience after audience that we've really missed 
somehow in our definitions, in our teaching, in the way that we set the container, we might have said, oh, you're an ally, you need to show up. But the journey is more fraught than that. It's more complex than that. We have to really, really, I think, join hands with folks in their evolution. And it's a step-by-step, one step forward, two steps back process. It's awkward. It's inexact. It's meandering. It's frustrating, I'm sure, to the person on the journey and also to those of us who are trying to shepherd and support. So the amount of patience that's needed for this is is enormous. And at a time when I think we were all very traumatized and we continue to be traumatized by how we're treated in the world, by what's happening in the world, traumatized by, there's no shortage of it. So traumatized people don't have a lot of patience and resilience. So, and yet this is what we're being called on to show to each other and to ourselves. So it's this, it's attention with that because we desperately need the participation and to nurture that participation. But when we feel depleted and our container is empty, how do we summon up the support again and again and again? And we call this emotional labor in our world, Audra. And the fact that a few of us are carrying this mantle alone seemingly, and we are exhausted and that's why. So I would like to see my vision is true engagement of potential allies this year to spread the work, to share the work, to equip and enable and empower others to truly connect in and understand what they can do. I don't think we've done enough there. I still think if you ask somebody, are you clear on what you can do? Do you know how to do it? Are you comfortable doing it? Are you going to do it when? Most are not. So where does what does that say about how we've approached generating the many hands that are going to make the work lighter? You know, I have to take the responsibility as a teacher. I think we do, we have to take that and say, got to go back to go forward. Got to, and I don't know. I don't know what else to say. I mean, I don't think we have a choice though. I mean, some others might think, well, Jen, that ship has sailed. We may as well give up on people. We may as well just go forward towards that future. I, I just don't think then it's going to be sustainable where we're going. And this really touches on our humanity. I mean, everything you just said summed up nicely I always say we lean into equity, diversity, inclusion. We're leaning into our humanity because we're looking at this from a perspective of one human being supporting another human being on their journey. And I think that we really need to get really clear on that bringing people in to the conversation you just raised, Jennifer, because without everybody, I mean, it's not just a DEI professional, it's not the HR team, it's not just your CEO, it's everybody in your organization, everybody in your community that can make immediate impact to someone's life from an equity, diversity, or DEI perspective. And I think we all have a role to play in our behaviors, our actions, the words we speak, everything, all those things come together and culminate whether you have inclusion or not. And I think that if we just lean into our humanity to just remember that part, that's our shared common bond is our humanity. But when we lose all of that, we lose the fight because where do we connect to? Where do we say, let's meet you where you are, our shared humanity? I would encourage everybody listening to this to, fortunately or unfortunately, we use DEI as sort of, I mean, it was usually a, an inside baseball kind of term. I mean, it's what we call our field, right? But if it's been hauled up into the headlines, if it's been stolen, really, this beautiful thing has been stolen and redefined, how can we get creative in this moment to talk about humanity, talk about our value proposition in a more universal, deeper way that makes it undeniable, makes it so true that it's not something that can be redefined. And maybe this is this, maybe this is this opportunity to, to, we're being forced to do it. It's not something we probably would have chosen, but when we have so many people who are misunderstanding the work because of what it's called, we should be able to, okay, well then let's call it, let's actually name it what it is, which is love, kindness, grace, um, storytelling, truth, lived life experience, hurt, fear, sadness, trauma. I mean, there's, there's, I've always loved DEI because it's this depth of it. It's not the name we call it. It is all the stuff that it kind of speaks to. That's what I really want to be talking about. But it's always been like this container that we can live in and it allows us to identify ourselves as part of a field. And so when I say I'm a DEI practitioner, I say that very proudly, but I don't actually expect the outside world to really know what that means. So is it an, is this an opportunity to redefine our work and make it even more 
integral. It is. We we are the professionals that are needed right now more than ever. We know this stuff. We know this stuff. We listen to humanity like nobody else. So how do we talk about our work doing that? And how do we sort of circumvent this moment of distraction? Thank you, Jennifer, for that. Now I'm going to pass it over to my phenomenal co-host, Nino Brown, who's going to ask, I'm sorry, Nino Campos. <laughs> His DJ name like is Nino name. Brown. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> His DJ name. DJ Days. He was DJ Nino Brown. Oh, okay, my apologies, okay. Nino. Nino Campos. <laughs> I have not heard that in a while. So thank you. Thank you for that intro. And Jennifer, thank you so much for, again, having uh, given us this opportunity to speak with you. And that conversation that you just had with Audra and those questions that provoked some, so many ideas in my head about what are we are now exploring, but also the things that are happening with society and diversity. And it's almost like a bad breakup, right? Like a bad friend breakup in a sense – People now, not it's not only ethnicity, it's not only gender, it's now with things that happen in the world like COVID, right? And it separated us from not everyone. Everyone became scared of each other, regardless of color, skin, color, or ethnicity. It became fearful of, are you, are you going to pass me on something that may kill me or and pass it to my family, right? And so when the world came back together again, we were very apprehensive. We didn't even know how to react with each other. So at these diversity conferences, I saw when we were getting back face-to-face, the handshake was almost non-existent. The hug was completely non-existent. The passion there was gone because it was more uh, speculism of if you're healthy or not, right? And I think that it does take things of that nature that – like, for instance, when MLK was assassinated, things changed, right? And then when Bobby Kennedy was, was assassinated, things changed a little bit. When when Rodney King incident happened, things changed, right? And then George Floyd, things changed. But it goes – we get used to it and adapt to it so quickly, right? You see that. And I think what I was picking up from the conversation is that we need to have these leaders – continue to have the passion, to continue to have those conversations that enlighten people, make people want to be not only engaged, but also want to be creative and innovative and see the future and doing that. And I think that's where we're lacking is people that provide us with that excitement that is still there, that there are people fighting for the right thing and being able to get connected with them and mentored, right? Because every mentor needs to be mentored, regardless of who you are. And I really, truly believe that. So thank you for the things that you just, and you provide that passion for me and say, you know what? Yes, there's things happening right now in this election year. There's things that are happening with, even with our celebrities that we were speak mentioning about earlier. So I think that we should definitely continue these types of conversations, but also empowering them. And I say that because my management has always continuously empower us to continue to learn, continue to read, continue to for progress with yourself. So you bring more to the table and you're able to expand on those things. And that being said, when I first joined Ronstad, my manager, Audra Jenkins, gave me a book and it was your book and it was how to be an inclusive leader your role in creating culture of belonging where everyone can thrive and in your book you reference um, that many workers don't feel comfortable about sharing aspects of their lives at work right and so and i think you referred it to covering what can leaders do to create a safe space for workers to show up as their true authentic selves in the workplace and everywhere else? I know that was a long-winded question. (laughs) (laughs) So covering, and by the way, Nino, the covering research has just been refreshed. And I want to let everybody know, if you look up, it's called Uncovering Culture now. And it's out of, again, out of Deloitte and Kenji Yoshino, who is an NYU constitutional law professor and his co-author, David Glasgow. So they've both been on my podcast, if you want to hear a little more about that research, but it is in it, you know, high level, people are still wrestling with a host of identities that are stigmatized in the workplace because we don't see anyone that shares that identity, because that identity is never named or normed in that environment. 
And so the hiding and the effort of hiding and downplaying and and it's funny as an LGBTQ person, it's very reminiscent of the closet, but it's covering is a little different, but it's a, it's a downplaying of something that's known often about us. So it's the intentional omission of personal details. It is the speaking differently or modifying your accent or leaving out cultural details that might identify you as part of a group or continuing to hide a disability that you really need support around, but you're also other identities that are stigmatized, which is the definition of intersectionality, right? That extra burden of multiple, carrying multiple stigmatized identities at the same time, visible and invisible. So the covering concept is still very much with us. I think with mental health, which is apparently from my research, is an epidemic that's impacting all workforces, intersectionally, by the way, because each cultural group uh, looks at mental health differently and has their own stigmas about it. But even just mental health is widespread, the challenge there. And so there's so much, there's so many layers to the human experience that's going on in the workplace. And there's so little that's really known. And there's so little that's supported, truly supported, so that people can feel psychological safety and belonging in a workplace because from that comes creativity, comes performance. We can't perform if we, in the Maslow hierarchy, we cannot perform at our best and most brilliant if our foundational needs, food, shelter, water, right? Psychological safety is that emotional safety and also, yes, physical safety too. It's all kinds of safety that you need to feel grounded in in order to trust your colleagues. I loved the the visual you gave us, you know, that we were scared of each other. And now we're scared of each other, perhaps not because of health issues. We're scared of each other because things have gotten so polarized in the way we give each other feedback and get feedback about things like microaggressions, about things like, oh, I don't understand what pronouns is about, or I misspoke, or I don't know anything about that identity. It's become so polarized that the fear now is I want to say the wrong thing. And I could be a violation, could get have me lose my job, could create problems with someone I care about. So it's a total kind of grinding to a halt, I think, of how the it's really the opposite of how we need to learn together. It's the opposite of how we need to actually engage with each other's world, experience, stories, truths, um, how we need to be changed by each other. We have to be able to dialogue and be in proximity with each other to be changed. Um, but when we're so afraid of that and we have pre-existing stereotypes about each other and how we're going to be heard and whether that person is seeing us. I think that's so true too. I mean, I can walk into a room and see nothing but what I think are male-identified humans and have to remind myself, don't be afraid right now. Don't assume your message is going to, and who you are, is going to be negatively judged. And I have to literally coach myself in that moment to uncover, to be courageous, to be tell the truth, to not make assumptions about the people that are looking at me and in my classroom. And it's an exercise. It true. So it lives in all of us. The fact that we mar- we marginalize each other in these subtle ways, and I think we need to be honest about writing people off and saying that person is of no value to this work. That is never true. It's never true. It's our job to figure out what needs to be unlocked in every human around us and how that person needs to be seen, wants to be seen, wants to contribute, what their contribution is going to be. Even if it is contributing from a place of privilege, those contributions are huge. We need those so much, just as much labor as we're doing on the other side. And I have privileged identities. I have marginalized identities myself. This is me speaking. I want to use all of them. I want to be called on to contribute, and I want to be on the receiving end of somebody's contribution, period. So where are we on that? If we can start there and build, I I think we might see each other differently as potential contributors to something where we need everybody's contribution. Wow. Thank you. Again, you're giving me such great insight and more more of uh, ammunition on the things that I think, but it's this basic, simple thing, right? It's understanding your moral compass, coming from the simple things that you believed in as growing up, right? We we come to this, come into this world innocent, right? No, as, as children, uh, we see things as one, right? I was raised by my parents are first generation Latin American, Central American, and my mom is from Bilbao, Spain, and 
there was never in my family a color issue, a race issue or gender issue. I was raised up to see people for who they are, right? Back to the basics. Don't judge a book by its cover. See, expect there's always value in meeting new people. Strangers are friends that you haven't met yet, right? Those kind of things. And, and finding those values. And it seems that we've fallen so far. We've made it so convoluted and so we dissect things so much when we, it's, it's, there's basic principles, right? Treat people with respect. Don't judge, judge what the book by its cover and, and really have serious intentions of being true, authentic, right? And accepting people. So hopefully we can come back to doing that instead of making all these different silos to try to get to one commonality, right? And we're not doing that. But then again, in the book, I don't want to, you touch on the concept of intent versus impact. And every DNI practitioner knows that good intentions don't necessarily lead to positive outcomes. Please, can you give us uh, in the audience an example how to turn intent into positive and impactful actions? That's such a great concept. And those of us who are in life partnerships, we know. <laughs> we, we go back and forth and say, well, it impacted me this way. Might not have been your intent. Right. So we're practicing this on a personal level as well. But in the workplace, we can't, I think we can't know our impact. It's difficult unless we have someone who trusts us enough and believes in and is in our corner enough to say, hey, this impacted me that way. Or here's how I heard that. Or here's what I wish you could have said. Or here's what might be better or more effective or more inclusive. So that's how we learn our impact. It's not, we can't perceive it, I don't think, unless somebody very overtly tells us what it is, which is rare. It's a rare gift when that happens. And we need to do that more, by the way. When somebody's having a positive impact through their efforts, we need to acknowledge it and tell them exactly what they did that made a difference. So let's make sure that we pledge to do that more often. But um, but in terms of the intender, I think the impact, the eye of the beholder is the phrase that comes to mind here. You are only an ally when someone in an affected community calls you an ally. So it's something that is earned. It is earned through repeated actions too, not just intent, but the right actions that have the impact that is desired. So it's an outside in process. I mean, we need to have the intent, but the outside in piece to me, it always feels like is, so what would allyship look like to you in this moment? What would it look like? What would it sound like? If we could ask different questions to calibrate our actions and make sure that the intent hits the mark, we're going to learn a lot about when I do this, it has this effect. When I do this, it's appreciated. When I do this other thing, it's imperfect. It says it's not quite where it needs to be or it's totally off. And yet I have somebody who's willing to coach me on how to steer it in the right direction. My hope is that you revisit if you're listening to this and you've assumed that your positive intention is resulting in, in impact. I would challenge you to lean into those who you, whom you hope to impact and say, what has been the impact? Like, did that make a difference? Did it help? What would you guide me to do next? And sometimes the answer is going to be nothing. Thank you for asking. <laughs> So sometimes we, you know, you know this, Nino, I mean, allyship can be this sort of enthusiastic response, right? I want to fix something. I want to say something. I want to do something. I want to, in a way we can kind of suck up all the oxygen in the room with this righteous energy. And I love that energy and I love that righteousness, but there are many ways, there are many solves, and it's really going to depend on the recipient, the intended recipient of your effort, of your intent, and what kind of support they need at that moment. I mean, it's going to vary day to day. It's going to vary person to person. I remember in 2020, we sort of talked a lot about how are we checking in with each other? This is a really hard time. I have friends of all kinds of identities, right? So I would check in, say, how can I support you? What more can I be doing? How can I elevate your voice? Who are other voices that I should be elevating? I mean, I was literally in sort of ally hardcore mode. Use my platform, take it over, say what you need to say, et cetera. And people would say, well, sometimes I just thank you, but I'm good. <laughs> thank you, but I don't need that kind of support. Here's the kind of support I need. So asking communities, what would you have us do 
given what's happening in the world? What would what would feel most supportive, most healing? What would feel authentic too? Because there's a lot of lip service. There's a lot of optics, posting the black square kind of stuff that still goes on. And the trauma's not over, you know, just because we're in 2024. I mean, we've had enough trauma to last many lifetimes, I feel like, in the last couple of years. And people are still hurting massively about a whole host of things. And trust has never been lower in institutions. And yet the most trusted institutions are employers. So that remains, I think, a helpful thing at a time when employers are under duress to do the right thing. They're getting a lot of pressure. But at the end of the day, how fascinating to think about the workplace and your work and your place and your colleagues as a place where there is still the most trust. It's not saying much because trust is low, but it is the place where the most exists for people. So what what do we want to do with that? How do we want to leverage that? How do we want to lean into that and use this as an opportunity to bring the right people to the table and rebuild a workplace that works for more of us, for all of us? So I said a lot there, but check your impact check it and do not make assumptions about what's working because you probably literally cannot perceive because you're not in somebody's shoes. All you can do is get more and more aligned to a laser focused intent that lands. That is ultimately, that's where you want to get, but there is a long learning journey and you need people's help to really understand how to point that energy to a place that really hits the mark and really does the trick. And I think you have to have a lot of humility and a low ego to literally like try, try, try again, because you're probably not going to be correct in what you think is going to make a difference. And that's, that's just life. I mean, that's what's so beautiful about us all holding different identities is that we know our identity best. And we, the answer is right there. It's there for the asking. So make sure to check. Thank you. Ally is such a powerful word for me these days. It, for myself, I reinvented it, what ally means. And because, again, you are hit with so many different personalities and prerequisites and others, other thinkings, right? Other ways of thinking that doesn't really blend with your the way of thinking or way of life. And allies to me is, for instance, like religion can get in the way or old family discriminations, right? That are subtle to you, but are really devastating to others. And how do you do that? And for instance, I have been honored to be able to say that I work for a company that really does the talking and the walking when it comes to diversity. And when I asked to become corporate members to the NGLCC, it wasn't other companies that took me many years to get to even ask the question. And here at Ronstad, I asked my manager and it was within literally seconds of, there was no hesitation and dive deep, find out what you can do, make that impact. How can you make that impact? Get recognized. And recognition is so quick, right? You get recognized for it, but what is the impact that you left? What is your legacy? What did you do for others so they can leapfrog what you've done? And you could sit back and say, oh, that's a nice award that's on the shelf, but Better yet, there's people still using the practices that I created and even made them better. So I think that for the audience that is listening, if they, I'm sure they know who you are and they may have read your book, but who haven't, please pick up the books that Jennifer Brown has put out there. They're so insightful and so passionately written. So that leads to the perfect segue here to why do you think the word privilege needs to be redefined and why does it matter? So important. Well, I think it's been uh, weaponized. It's been also incorrectly defined in its weaponization. <laughs> Privilege exists in all of us, different kinds different kinds, socioeconomic, who knows, there's extrovert privilege sometimes in terms of like being able to deal with certain environments, if that's what your environment favors. There is knowledge and domain expertise. There's tenure privilege and seniority. There's even pandemic privilege. I mean, if you have the means to have a quiet workspace during that pandemic and you had a good work, good connection and you weren't homeschooling kiddos and you weren't dealing with chronic illness yourself and others, it's what you're not having to carry. It's simply that. And it defined that way, we can't put certain groups of people in a box and say, hey, you're, I mean, I hope we're not saying you're a bad person because of where you were born, what you were born into, what body you were born in. I mean, I hope we're not doing that, but I have heard that. 
So we need to really redefine it. And I try, I literally come on stage and within the first five minutes, I talk about it for me because I'm trying, what I'm trying to do is demonstrate how it can be talked about in a way that isn't frightening, in a way that isn't throwing myself under the bus and sort of being ashamed of certain advantages that I have had, have fortunate enough to have in my life. Because what really matters about being given privileges that maybe you didn't earn, sometimes you earn them, but to me, it, doesn't, it kind of doesn't matter. You have them. You have them. And the question to me is, what are you doing with them? What are you doing with them to increase equity? What are you doing with them to give something a platform or someone a platform or sharing the spotlight or putting your capital in play to support someone's journey? What are you doing with what you have? And if we could have that conversation, then I think we would see a lot of people engage because right now the assumption is that, oh, I am, I have so many privileges that I cannot relate to these issues that people are raising. I can't relate to them. Therefore, I can't contribute. That's the math that people are doing. And not only that, they feel they are made to feel somehow, and I'm not saying we do this to people, not all of us, but regardless, you end up feeling that it's a bad thing. It's something that I don't want to talk about. It's something that I don't want, I certainly do not want to share as part of my leadership toolkit. So what I'm asking people to do is hard, which is how do you talk about the varying identities that you carry, those that come with more privilege in a given system, and those that have been a real struggle because you've been in an underrepresented group or a marginalized group. And I think most of us, that describes most of us and many of us and tons of hidden diversity dimensions in people that look like they have all the privileges in the world. So back to what I was talking about with one of you being in that room and walking in that room and seeing what I think is all male identified, perhaps all white identified, you know, senior executives, which I do all the time and having to really fight my biases, like fight them to say, do you really know who these people are? You think you do. You think you do. You don't know how they could, they have privileges they are underutilizing. That much I can tell you for sure, because it's not a part of how leaders see themselves and they're, and they don't even identify the tools that they have. They, and they certainly don't know how to deploy them. And if they did, and if we could help them understand what that looks like, that would lift all of us up. But instead, they are feeling confused, overwhelmed. We might say, oh, you've been informed. You've been informed. Like, were you under a rock in 2020? <laughs> like, why are you not doing more? To me, it, you know, we can sit there and be mad about it, and it does not get us where we need to go. Like, so I, I'm not about, like, you're bad. I, I don't think it's about agreeing or disagreeing. It's about meeting people, regardless of why. It's meeting people where they're at and seeing and making room for how people identify in ways that you cannot perceive and making enough safety, creating enough psychological safety so that you can learn what that is. If somebody trusts you with their truth, it is the most sacred gift that you can have. I know as an LGBTQ person, if I come out to you, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And if I tell you what I've been through, I clearly I'm bringing you in. And if we could help leaders get better at doing that themselves and also then creating enough space, which will happen, they will create enough space for others to say, hey, here's what I'm wrestling with. Here's where I could use support. We start to shift cultures in that way. But right now, there's a few of us that are doing most of this, most of this change work. And it doesn't have to be that way, but we have to change our vocabulary and the way that we engage people and the way that we see them and don't see them. That has to change. 100%. I, I believe you. That it has happened to me many times. And being in this industry for a little over 15 plus years, uh, I, I led large industry groups. And one of them was the largest tech industry group in the US, and, which was had the top 50 tech corporations like Facebook, Meta, Google, Apple, Amazon. And I came into this organization as just a junior level manager uh, in, in diversity, but ended up leading this industry group and evolving their supplier diversity programs. And the seven years that I was with the industry group or led it, there were individuals, if not 50% of the, that had titles, executive titles. And those, uh, those leaders would not shake my hand or embrace me for any, I could have said, hey, it's because of the color of my skin or if it was my title. And there was a point where I got recognized as Diversity Professional of the Year and I announced my trauma 
the first in my industry to provide insight to who I really was or who and why I do the things I do. And I think if you are a person that loves what they do, not like what they do, but loves what they do, you're able to guide people. You're able to show people that there's a better way. And when I leveled the playing field and came out with my story, Triumph Over Trauma, in a positive way, not for pity, those gentlemen, when I got off the stage, those gentlemen were the first gentlemen to come and embrace me and say thank you for leveling out the playing field. This, that they had, There was commonality between us because of that, they, they experienced that same trauma, that we're all human. We're all different. We're all unique, but we're all equal. And we should show each other respect if you're trying to do something for the right reasons. So I know I went on a tangent there, but I ex- believe exactly what you say. If we come out as our authentic self, non-judgmental as best we can, because we all have biases, like you said, uh, I think that this would be a better world and better place to live in. We can pr- progress. But that, so I come to my last question here. And again, this is now off of what we were saying, but we here at Ronstadt have created or launched six global business resource groups to help drive awareness and education. And Audra has provided us a amazing pathway and a way to communicate with all of Ronstadt and internally and externally, and to be able to show that we are not only dedicated and committed to doing these great works in diversity and providing awareness and education, but also have be passionate about it and really enjoy it. So within our BRGs, we've created a mentorship program. What are some of the positive outcomes are you seeing from your clients who offer mentorship and sponsorship programs? These are so important. I'll never forget reading Sylvia Hewlett's work, Forget a Mentor, Find a Sponsor. And traditionally, her focus was female talent, but the whole mentoring sponsor thing is critical. And I I could differentiate between them and agree with her. The sponsor, the difference is the sponsor puts their social and professional capital in play. And that is what really, really makes the difference, as the research has told us, of career velocity, of advancement, particularly for those of us who are underrepresented. It's really sponsorship. So, but I'm not surprised, Nino, that your networks are working on programs like this, and it's super necessary, and it maybe starts with mentorship because sponsorship is a bit trickier to scale. Mentorship is obviously career advice, one-on-ones, but even that, I would advise some kind of reverse mentoring as well. So if we flipped the model on its head and (laughs) thought about, and I've actually seen this done in certain companies, could there be younger talent mentoring senior talent? What would that look like? Would that allow the growth, exponential growth for senior leaders to be in relationship with across difference and with people of different generations in order so that they can lead in a more emotionally intelligent, informed way about how the workforce is changing rapidly and how those identities are showing up in the workplace that most senior executives have no proximity to. So when you're thinking about mentorship and sponsorship programs, A, sponsorship is where the rubber hits the road in terms of people opening doors for you, using your name, vouching for you for opportunities, literally concretely making things easier, like clearing the path. That's the activity of a sponsor. And a sponsor can also be a mentor, of course. And a mentor can also move into being a sponsor, but sponsors have a power. They have power in a system and they can actually do things quickly. They can make things happen. So really, for those of you who are listening, you should not only have mentors, but do you have a sponsor? Many of you would probably say no, or if I do have one, I don't even know who they are. <laughs> and often if somebody's an invisible angel guiding things and opening doors for you, you may not know that somebody's really seen you and really believes in you and is really making things happen behind the scenes. So, But I just want to plant that seed because I think it's really important to be looking for that. Be looking for somebody who's really enthusiastic about your work and who has the power to clear the path for you. And then I would think about blowing up the mentor model a bit and making it more mutual because I think all generations have so much to learn from each other. And if we take our lead from only the more senior generations, they understood the workplace to look a certain way and they understood identity to show up in a certain way. And they 
generationally had very limited, I think, competence and understanding of, of all the diversities as we teach it now. And then we've got this younger generation that knows all that stuff intimately. So they're very comfortable sharing their pronouns, very comfortable being allies for each other. They are doing everything that we need to bake into the DNA of our workforce. But how can the leaders who are making so many of the decisions ever shift how they lead if they're not in direct conversation with and being influenced by the incoming generation and what they believe, what they value, how they define belonging, how they want to be treated, how their experience is showing up, what's broken in the workplace, what's inequitable in the workplace. They see it all. And there's a treasure trove of information there. So again, I really would challenge, and this kind of program is radical and it's not very widespread, but it's always just been a vision of mine that I think it would help a lot on many levels. It would raise up talent to the awareness of people who are making promotion and advancement decisions. It would provide a safe place for an executive to learn and be a learner because senior people don't like being vulnerable as learners. They don't like having it pointed out that they don't know the answer about things. And yet the truth that I think we're not all naming is that I will willingly say as a Gen Xer, there's so much I don't know. And if we could hear that from leaders, then I think the road will rise to meet that leader and really support that leader in their growth. But they have to go first and say, this is what I need to evolve. Will you help me? So just a little twist or maybe a big twist to think about, (laughs) but what a great incubator to do that kind of program in. I mean, affinity groups are a beautiful place to do that, but you can accomplish so much if you structure these programs in this kind of more forward thinking way. And if you can get a program going like that, please be in touch with me and let me know how it's going. I could speak to you on this all day. Thank you so much. So I'm going to pass this on to our wonderful and amazing Andre Jenkins to close us out. One last question, Jennifer. I love to ask our guests. What do you want your legacy to be that your loved ones and fans remember the most? Oh, legacy is so important. I'm turning my attention to that given the, the decade I'm in of my life. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to enable a whole new generation of people to feel heard and seen and valued. And I'd like, I'd really like people to understand their role in change. I'd like them to think bigger about what's possible for how they use their voice. I'd like them to manage like all the little voices that tell us we can't be that, or somebody already did that, or that's already been said or whatever. And remember that each of us is this beautiful, unique kaleidoscope of identity. And we each are messengers that could make a difference and be heard differently by someone that needs to see us in particular, like me, with all the pieces of who I am, with how I was born, with all of the cultural norms I have or whatever it is, like I am going to present what I know and what I'm passionate about in a very unique way. And there is an audience for everyone. And an audience is looking for you. And I say audience, that could be anything. That could be anything at all. But I want to coax people along that journey and get more storytellers that are ready to really move into that spotlight. It's not for everybody. It's not necessarily everybody's destiny to be a public figure. But I want, I very much want more to follow in my footsteps and build something like what I've built. And I I love that coaching work, actually, Audra. I'm doing some one-on-one helping people move towards thought leadership from coaching, from consulting, from using their personal story, thinking about their big keynote, thinking about like, how would I, what would I say on that big stage of life? What is my legacy going to be? And I find it endlessly fascinating and amazing work. I mean, it's it's really uh, neat to see this next generation rising up and to be a part of that. Thank you, Jennifer. Please share with our listeners how they can find out more information, your website, your podcast, and your latest books. Definitely. Thank you. So Jennifer Brown Consulting and Jennifer Brown Speaks are two sites we maintain. I have an incredible team that does really, really good strategy and training work and lots of ERG work, by the way. And then my socials, I'm everywhere on LinkedIn. Jennifer Brown Speaks on Instagram. What else can I tell you? Four books. Yes. The latest is the second edition of How to Be an Inclusive Leader, which came out last, not last year, but the year before. So end of 2022. And then the Will to Change podcast, seventh year, as you said, gosh, hundreds of episodes in there with amazing change makers. So please tune into that and just get on our mailing list. We do monthly community calls where all are welcome. 
we have an always robust dialogue and chat and I bring on interesting guests who I'm learning from as much as my audience is. So just join our world and um, come and learn with us. Thank you, Jennifer. I am so thankful for this enlightening discussion. You brought many, many timely insights for our listeners today. Thank you, Nino, my incredible co-host. Also, I want to give a big thank you to our thousands of global listeners in 60 plus countries. We truly appreciate your support now more than ever. In the words of Audre Lorde, when I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my vision, that it becomes less and less important whether I'm afraid. Remember to use your power, your voice, your platform to make the world better. When we celebrate equity, diversity, and inclusion, we celebrate humanity. Be sure to spread the word and tag our hashtag diversity deep dive podcast. Inclusion happens one intentional action at a time. Let's keep the conversation going. Please download more episodes of the Diversity Deep Dive podcast. Until next time, seek out ways to make a positive difference in the world, your workplace, and community. Thank you.